Good morning, First Baptist. If you're going to take your Bible out with me and turn to the book of Genesis, we're looking at chapter 48 this morning, which is found on page 41. If you're looking at that black Bible underneath the chair that you're sitting in, we're on the home stretch. Lord willing, we'll finish this book uh, in early December. So it's been a blessing to, to consider who God is and what he has to say to us through his word in Genesis. Encourage you to keep your Bible open and follow along as we read Genesis 48 together this morning. Consider what God has to say to us. And again, as a reminder to you, if you don't own a Bible at home that you can read, that black Bible and that chair is our gift to you. Take it home. Uh, No one will tackle you on the way out if you sneak that out of here. We want you to take the Bible home, use it, write in it, ask questions. We'd love to have God's word in your hand as a gift from us to you. All right. Everyone there at Genesis 48? Yeah? We, We can talk. You there? All right, all right. Well, I want to begin this morning with a quick inventory, a quick assessment of where you're at and where I'm at. I want you to think about what is valuable to you, what's important to you. What do you look forward to? What do you hope will happen tomorrow or next week or next month or this coming year? What gets you out of bed in the morning? As an athlete, willingly endures painful workouts for the glory of a gold medal or first prize or state championship or whatever it is, we as followers of Christ are motivated, we as people are motivated by what we love. Whether work or sports or school or family, we work for and we are willing to persevere even in hard things because we value something. We're willing to keep going and to work through the hard things of that thing that we value because we believe that it will put us in a position to be blessed. That's what gets us out of bed each morning. So for that reason, when we work hard at something, when we give it our all, and then things don't turn out as we had hoped, when life doesn't go the way that we had thought it would, our life can feel like a shattered vase, a million pieces lying on the ground, our hopes like that shattered vase. When Jacob first arrived in Egypt in chapter 47, and Pharaoh asks him his age, Jacob was kind of like that shattered vase. All he could do was complain. All he could see was what went wrong. You'll remember in chapter 47, verse 9, he answered Pharaoh, Few and evil have been the days of my life. Life's been hard. Life's been horrible. Life's been evil. Life had not gone as he had planned. But what's interesting is that when we turn to chapter 48, we'll find that Jacob has now lived in Egypt with his family of 70 for 17 years. 
At this point in his life, he is now 147 years old. He's getting up there. And instead of, what's interesting is that instead of being bitter or cynical, this complainer that we met in chapter 47, we find a different man. We find in chapter 48 a a Jacob who is filled with hope, who is filled with thanksgiving, who is filled with worship. And we know that because in the New Testament, Hebrews 11 verse 21 interprets Genesis 48 for us. And the writer of Hebrews in, Genesis, in Hebrews eleven twenty one 21 says this, of, of what we're going to read this morning. This is the interpretation. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. He had gone from complaining to worship, cynical to grateful. How do we explain this transformation in Jacob? What happened during those 17 years? Well, I think one way to answer that question is to even consider what we've been facing this week as a church family. We had two funerals this week for Regina Flowers, a member of our church, and and, and for and for, for the, the mother of Joel, Diana Wagner. And because a funeral makes you stare at death, when you go to a funeral, it's just in your face. It's like, look at death. Look at it. Look at it. When we stare at death, what happens at a funeral is it clarifies what's really important in life and what's not important. In other words, As Ecclesiastes 7 reminds us, funerals, the house of mourning, has a way of giving us perspective. And as Jacob lies on his own deathbed and stares at death, he has gained perspective. A perspective, we'll find, that has really set Jacob free. He finally understood who is in a position to receive God's blessing. And so as we see him now turning to bless his son Joseph in chapter 48 and his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh, he shares the perspective that he gained over the years with them, but he also also shares that same perspective that he learned through that long life with us as we read chapter 48. So if you're taking notes this morning, Point number one of our sermon is this. The benefit of weakness. Point number one, the benefit of weakness. This is verses one through 13. So let's look at God's word together in Genesis 48. Moses writes, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. And so he took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession." And now to your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. 
Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, my, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Joseph were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. We'll pause there for a moment. If we were watching Genesis 48 on a movie screen, the first thing that the cameraman would zoom in on in chapter 48 is Jacob's weakness. And Moses, as the author of this text, shows us in various ways, highlights, zooms in on his weakness. Verse 1, we're told that he is ill. It's an ill that is a terminal illness. He's on his deathbed. So when Joseph learns that his, his father Jacob is about to die, he puts down his work that he was doing, and he comes to visit his father before he dies, and he brings with him his two sons. And so when he brings in his two sons with him, he, he, brings, he brings them in, and, and we're told that when he arrives, Jacob is so weak, verse 2, he had to summon his strength just to sit up in bed. He's so sick, he's so weak that he has to dig deep just to sit up. And then in verse 10, we, we learn another detail about Jacob. We're told that he's blind. We're told in verse 10, the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So this is the picture that we see of Jacob. He's 147 years old. He's sick and on his deathbed. He's he's blind. So needless to say, Jacob's not about to sign up for any marathons. He's not going to be competing in any Mr. Olympia competitions. He is weak. He is frail and fragile. But what's interesting, what's ironic, is that when Jacob's physical eyes fail him, it's then that his spiritual vision is now 2020. It's when Jacob is physically weak that he's finally spiritually strong. It's like the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When I am weak, then I am strong. I wonder if he had Jacob in mind. Friends, our weakness, not our strength, 
Our weakness is the platform on which God displays his might and his strength. Now, when Joseph and his sons come in before frail and weak and old Jacob, the the patriarch looks back on his life that we've had a chance to walk through for 25 years, and Jacob then turns and he shares his testimony with his son, Joseph. He shares his testimony with his grandsons of God's faithfulness. Verse three, he says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he starts reminiscing on his testimony and the ways that God had been faithful to him. We've been walking with Jacob and before him Isaac and before him Abraham. And you remember in Genesis 12 is when he first saw this promise in Genesis 12. God selects Abraham in Genesis 12 and he makes a promise to Abraham that that he is going to give him the promised land. He is gonna make his offspring into a great nation. He's gonna gonna make the offspring of Abraham as many as the stars are in the sky. He's going to bless Abraham to make him into a blessing for all the nations. And then that promise would be passed on to his son, Isaac, and that promise would be then passed on to his grandson, Jacob. So when God appeared to Jacob in Genesis 28, then again in Genesis 35, and blessed him, it was clear that that promise was not only for Abraham, but now is for Jacob and his family. So it's interesting to to reflect on how God made that promise in Genesis 35 and compare it to how God makes, how he reflects on that promise here in chapter 48. Because one of the things that's interesting is the difference in, in Genesis 35, when God makes this promise, he makes it as, he issues it, he issues it as a command to Jacob. He commands him, be fruitful and multiply. You do this, be fruitful and multiply. But when Jacob reflects on that promise in Genesis 48, the emphasis is not on the command, the emphasis is on how God himself will accomplish in Jacob what he commanded. Verse four, look at verse four. Behold, this is reflecting on what God had said. Behold, I, God, will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples. And I will give you this land to your offspring after you. Notice what he emphasizes. God saying, I will, I will, I will. It's almost as if he's celebrating his weakness. Jacob is weak. But who is God in verse three? Who appeared to him at Luz? God Almighty. The omnipotent God, the God of all strength that has no limits to his power. He will do what Jacob cannot. Friends, I wonder... Who do you think is in a position to receive God's blessing? Don't don't just rush to the right biblical answer. Sometimes we know the right biblical answer, we don't really believe it. Who do you think is in a position to receive God's blessing? I think all too often, if we're honest, our mind goes directly to the people in this life who perform, right? Right? those who have done good, those who have cared for others, 
those who have served countless people, those who belong in the ranks of Mother Teresa. Oh, those are the people who are in the position to receive God's blessing. Or, or, or we think about those who are accomplished, who've worked hard in life, who've had success, straight A's, who made the varsity team, who the man who was a loving father, the woman who was a caring mother, or the child who was a well-behaved kid. Those who perform, those who have accomplished, we think are in the pathway of receiving God's blessing because the world applauds. The world celebrates those who perform. And so it's easy to then flip over and assume that oh, those, are, those must be the people then who are at the front of the line to receive God's blessing. But one of the things we, we learn from this text is that God's economy is not the world's economy. God flips the world's economy upside down. Just think, just think of Jesus' parable in the New Testament of the prodigal son. Luke 15, there's two sons and a father. You have the older, well-behaved, accomplished brother. I mean, this is the son that you want your daughter to marry. He's the respectable son. And then you have the younger son who was a mess who squandered his father's inheritance on reckless and sinful living and in the end has ruined his life and finds himself eating from the pig trough. This is not who you want your daughter to marry. And so we expect at that point of the story of Jesus' parable, we expect the older brother to be blessed, but in the end, it's the prodigal son who comes home in repentance who is blessed and it's the older, self-righteous brother who's outside of the party, arms crossed, angry. We don't know if he's blessed. Or think of Jesus' parable in Luke 18 of the Pharisee, who is a well-respected religious leader in the community, in comparison with the tax collector, who would be the despised, low-life, the scoundrel, who you, when you see him walking on the street, you go on the other side just so you don't get you know, you know, you know, whatever he has doesn't rub off on you. We expect the Pharisee, the well-respected leader in the community, to be blessed. But listen, in Luke 18, in the end, it's the tax collector, it's the despised, it's the scoundrel who beats his chest saying, have mercy on me. He's the one who leaves the temple blessed. Not the Pharisee. I don't know about you, but I don't like being weak. None of us like being weak. It's why we go to the gym. It's why we try to eat healthy food. We don't want to be weak. But one danger of strength, one danger of prosperity is to assume that, I mean, life's going okay. I'm not sure I need God. At least... I don't need God like the wicked do, like the tax collector, like the younger brother does. And those who look in the mirror and they see, I'm a pretty good person. Those who look in the mirror and see a decent person, they may be religious. They, they may go to church on Sunday, but they put their religion in the long list of things that they're really good at. Jacob, as we've walked with him chapter after chapter, Jacob has been plagued with that type of self-reliance. 
He had God's presence. He had God's promises from the very beginning. But over and over and over, we have seen Jacob rely on his own strength, rely on his own effort, rely on his own schemes and his lies in an effort to gain control of his future rather than trusting in God who made the promise. We've seen this over and over. When the girl of his dreams was in jeopardy, maybe these other shepherds will win her over, what does he do? He muscles the capstone off the well that the weak other shepherds couldn't lift and he flexes his muscles in front of Rachel to win her over. When it seems like Esau was going to get ahead of him and he was gonna get the blessing that he wanted, what does he do? He deceives his father. He tricks his brother to grab a hold of the blessing that he was afraid wouldn't be his. When his ability to provide for his family was in jeopardy when he was working for Laban, what does he do? He leans on superstition and good luck charms rather than trusting God and his promise to provide for him. From the day that he was born, on the day that he was born, he came out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel as if to say, no, 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 me first. And that's why they named him Jacob, which means heel grabber or cheat or schemer. Ever since then, Genesis has gone back and forth. Sometimes he's called Jacob, the heel grabber, the cheat. Sometimes he's called Israel, which means he has strived with God. We're seeing his sanctification. Some days he's trusting God, some days he's trusting himself. He's gone back and forth, back and forth. Jacob didn't like being weak. We don't like being weak. But friends, if God has you in a place of weakness in your life right now, if God in his providence has put you in a place where you are burdened beyond your own strength, it's fine to, for us and appropriate for us to acknowledge this is painful, this is hard, this is uncomfortable. Of course it is. But if seeing our weakness helps us to run to God, if accepting our weakness helps us to rely upon God, then praise God for allowing us to feel overwhelmed in that moment. Just picture this, the scene, right? In terms of the world, Joseph is powerful, second in command. So his family had the best clothing, the best housing, the best education, the best wealth, things that the world would seem like, oh, amazing. That's success. But then you go to the funeral. You hear the obituary of that person read. You see what really matters, what doesn't matter. You see the casket with a dead body the casket that says to us at the funeral, you're gonna be lying here soon too. 
and the funeral gives perspective. Wealth, land, house, education, all the things that we want for our kids, all the things that we want to provide for our grandkids, all those good things will perish overnight. Then what? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jacob has learned. He's learned to embrace his weakness because it helps him to rely upon God. And in verse 9, when he asks for his grandsons that he might bless him, this is what he wants. The blessing, is, the blessing that they need is not more wealth and health and prosperity. Because listen, in a matter of years, the next generation of Israelites will become slaves. And they will live in what's referred to as the iron furnace of Egypt. If they are to survive in the iron furnace of slavery in Egypt, they're going to need more than wealth and health and prosperity. They're going to need to learn what Jacob has learned, to embrace their weakness so that God Almighty can be their strength. As a father, the older I get, this is what I long for my two sons. Not a problem-free life. Not more stuff. Not the applause of this world. More than anything, I want my kids to know and love and trust in Jesus. Kids, this world is bombarding us with visions of success that will appeal to your flesh and will try to distract us from God. My encouragement from this text is that if you're young, talk to your parents. Sit your grandparents down. Find an older saint in this church and ask them to talk to you. Ask them to share their testimony as an older saint of God's faithfulness in their life, just like Jacob shares his testimony of God's faithfulness with his grandsons. Ask this older saint, your, your parents, your grandparents, and an older saint in this church, ask them, how did God save you? Tell me about it. How has the Lord changed your life? Who were you before you were Christian, and what difference has God made in your life over the years? Tell me. Grandpa, grandma, mom, dad, saint, tell me. How has God been faithful to you? And then younger people in this church, listen to them. Listen to their wisdom and their counsel, which comes from years of walking with God. Are you an older saint in this church? Any older saints in this church? All right. Here's my, here's my counsel to you. Don't be silent. Do not assume because you, you are in, in the, in, in, you're an elderly person in this church that you don't have something to say. You have everything to say if you've walked with God. Speak up. Speak of God's power. Tell the coming generation of the wonderful deeds of God in your life. Talk to the younger generation, the next generation, about his goodness in your life. Tell us over and over and over how God alone has been worth living for. We need the testimony of the older saints in this church. Speak up, please.
Friends, in Jacob's weakness, God gave him sight. God made him strong in the Lord. In his redemption, God then gives a blessing for Jacob to share. That's point number two. Point number two, hands that bless. Point number two, hands that bless. This is verses 14 through 22 of our text. Look with me down at verse 14. And and as we read the text, pay attention to the hands, like a magician. Watch the hands, right? All right, verse 14. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father's laid his right hand his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim it displeased him and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head and Joseph said to his father not this way my father since this is this one is the firstborn put your right hand on his head but his father refused and said i i know i know son i know he also said, he also, shall, he also shall become a people, and he also shall be, be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So we've seen how the the, the camera has initially focused, first of all focused on Jacob's weakness, and now the camera in this section zooms in on Jacob's hands in verses 14 through 21. In verses 14 through 21, hands are mentioned nine times, nine times by Moses. And what we see Jacob doing with his hands is blessing his grandsons. But as one writer notes, seeing Jacob's hands provides a snapshot of his life and all that those hands have done from the first day we met him until now in chapter 48. As an old and blind Jacob reaches out his hand, probably trembling, to bless his grandsons. He no doubt remembered what his hands had done years before in a similar situation when his father 
Isaac was also old and blind and vulnerable. Do you see the irony in this? Afraid that Esau would get ahead of him, he took his hands and covered his hands with goat skin and goat hair to deceive his blind old father. Those hands which are blessing his grandsons were once used to deceive in order to snatch the blessing that he wanted. These were the hands that cheated, that lied, that rebelled against God. These hands of Jacob, these were the hands that wrestled with God and said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. These were the hands that held the blood-stained garment of Joseph that were used to convince him that his son was killed. And under the excruciating sorrow of believing that Joseph was dead, these hands that once clung to God, wrestling with him, I will not let you go. Under this sorrow, it seems like these are the hands that let God go. As he refused to be comforted and waited to die in grief when he heard that Joseph was dead. Do you see Jacob's hands? Now look at your hands. I wonder if you can identify with Jacob when you look at your hands. Jacob's hands tell a story, our hands tell a story. What story do your hands tell? In a room like this, there are no doubt hands that have cheated, hands that have held a man or a woman not their own spouse, hands that have clicked on explicit images, hands that are guilty of violence and abuse, hands that have taken part in lies and deceit, hands that are guilty of greed and partiality and envy and covetousness, hands that have held the bottle of drunkenness, hands that have been involved in violent rage and of anger, hands that have suffered loneliness, hands that have suffered the grief of losing a loved one as they hold the dead body of a loved one, hands that are filled with disappointment, hands that are filled with sorrow. When we look at Jacob's hands, and we see that they went from deceiving and being despairing and sorrow to now blessing. We look at our own hands and we wonder, is that possible for us too? The transformation that we saw in Jacob and in his hands, is that transformation possible for us too? How do we account for the transformation in Jacob's hands? Look at verse 15. He blessed Joseph and said, the God, before me, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, 
long to this day. Not only had God been strength in his weakness, verse 15 tells us how God had been Jacob's shepherd. In despair and sorrow, Jacob may have lost his grip on God, but God never let him go. God held him fast from beginning until the end. And as Jacob recounts all his ups and downs, all his triumphs and his failures, he now testifies, you know what? When I look back on my life, God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. Not just parts of, not just the good, but all the days of my life. God has been my shepherd. This is before David says, the Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23. It seems like David is quoting Jacob. So whether green pastures and still waters or in the valley of death, Jacob is reflecting, looking back and testifying, God has been my shepherd. God has been with me. And now when I look back on my life, all the ups and downs, all the joys and sorrows, when I look back on my life, I see only a trail of goodness and mercy. He has been my shepherd. And so now he lifts up his hands to bless. But we say, hold on, how? What about the, what about the defilement of sin on his hands? I mean, if a surgeon... If surgeons dare not operate on someone without clean hands, how could he then with defiled hands bless his grandsons? Looking at verse 16. He says, the angel who has redeemed me. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. The angel there is shorthand for God. This is the same angel of God that Jacob wrestled with back in chapter 32. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so now as he looks back on God, his shepherd, and looks back on the days of his life, he sees how this shepherd not only has been with him, but this shepherd has redeemed him from all evil. To redeem means to pay the ransom, to pay the bill for someone's freedom who has fallen into the clutches of slavery. He looks back and sees his shepherd. His shepherd, God his shepherd, has in mercy covered the cost for his freedom. God his shepherd has has paid the price, the ransom, so that all the evil that he has done, all his deceit, all his schemes, all his rebellion against God, and all the evil that was done to him, he can now look back and say, God has redeemed me from all evil. What man meant for evil, God turns it for good. What I have done, God turns it for good. And so now after being redeemed by God, cleansed by God, Jacob is free to lift up his hands and bless the boys. But what does it mean to bless, right? Sometimes we say, Christian words, and we have no idea what they mean, right? I mean, whether it's someone online posting hashtag blessed or a a phrase that I've learned now living in this area of the country long enough, the Southerners, well, bless their heart, right? Which I think is either condescension or pity. I'm not sure yet. 
But whatever the, whatever, we, we, whatever the case, we use the word blessed and we've lost the weighty biblical meaning of the word such that we just say blessed and, we, and it's, just, it's just an empty word now. If we are to understand what Jacob means when he's blessing the boys, we must recover the biblical sense of the word, the, the weighty biblical sense of the word. So to do that, one of the ways we can do this is just to, just to ask the question. Let me give you one more example. If you sneeze, what does the person next to you say? God bless you. Why do we say that? You ever ask that? Well, there's a lot of different theories. But one theory was laid out by a, a theologian named Sinclair Ferguson. And he looks back in history and he notes how it may go back all the way to the Middle Ages when the bubonic plague killed large swaths of the population in Europe. The plague was considered as an indication of God's judgment. It was considered by many as an indication of God's curse. And sneezing was one of the first symptoms that you might have the plague. So for that reason, saying God bless you became a kind of prayer. In other words, what they were saying back then, if it was used this way, was in saying God bless you, what they were saying was, may you not fall under God's judgment, God's curse. May you rather be blessed. May the curse be turned from you so that you may live. Now we're on to what Jacob means when he says, God bless the boys. He wants God's judgment to be turned from his son, his sons, his grandsons. He wants them to experience the blessing of God, the reconciled relationship, the forgiveness, not the curse, not the judgment, but the forgiveness, the reconciled relationship, the presence of God. And this turning the curse away from someone is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We read about it in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, because you and I have sin on our hands, the defilement of sin on our hands, we deserve God's punishment, the curse of the law, the wages of our sin is death and hell. But the good news is that Jesus came and as the eternal son of God took on flesh 2,000 years ago so that he might redeem all who trust in him. On the cross, the sinless son of God was paying the penalty of sin for those who trust in him with his death in our place, and his resurrection on the third day. Remember what he prayed in the garden before he went to the cross? 
Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath that he's about to drink. But if there's no other way for this to pass from me, then not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross, and on the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I, who trust in him, can drink the cup of his blessing. That we might live. That's what we mean when we say, God bless you. Praise God for this blessing. But there's another detail that we have to consider before we close this morning, and that is Jacob's crossing of his hands. And we need to consider it because no word is wasted in Scripture. Every word is there for a reason. It's inspired by God. And Moses includes a lot of detail back and forth about Jacob crossing his hands when he went to bless each grandson. Why does he do this? Well, the the custom of the day was that the oldest son, the oldest child, received the birthright, and that birthright brought with it privileges. It brought the responsibility of leadership in the home, and it also brought a double portion of the inheritance when the parents died. Now, we know from this text that Manasseh was the older, so he, he has the, it's customary for him to receive the, the privileged birthright. And Ephraim is the younger. And so when Joseph enters the room, he assumes, okay, Manasseh's the older one, he's the firstborn, he's in a position to receive the blessing of God. That's how this is gonna go down. But that's not what happened. Verse 14, Israel, Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, well, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. It's a vivid picture. The crossing of Jacob's hands teaches an important lesson for us today. The blessing of God is not based on your performance. The blessing of God is not based on the color of your skin or your ethnicity or what family you came from or your status in this world. On the contrary, the blessing of God is based upon God's grace, a gift undeserved, unmerited. And friends, for sinners like you and sinners like me, that is good, good news. Because it doesn't matter what family you came from or how bad you've blown it. What matters is how you and I respond to God's gracious, undeserved invitation. And the answer of scripture is that for all, for all who come to Jesus in faith, and in repentance, trusting him for their redemption. There is redemption. There is forgiveness. There is the embrace of a loving father for those who come to him through Jesus, his son. So friends, if you're not yet a Christian, I plead with you. Turn from your sin and come to God as your father, not by the merit of your good deeds, not by the lineage of your family, not by being a decent person, but coming to God through Jesus, trusting in him. In blessing his grandsons, Jacob is actually adopting Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons. And in effect, he's elevating his grandsons to the level of the other 11 sons who would inherit plots of land in the promised land. We're going to see this later on in the Old Testament. But at first, Joseph doesn't like this. When he sees When he sees his dad crossing his hands and mixing up the order, verse 19 says that Joseph, it displeased him. 
He's angry. No, 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 no. He got this wrong. You're blind, Dad. You got this wrong. This was not my plan. I've been, I've, I've been working with Manasseh his whole life to prepare him to be the recipient of the birthright, to be the leader of the family, not Ephraim. So switch your hands, Dad. And he says, no. This is not me making this up. This is God's plan. God's plan was for Ephraim, not Manasseh. And that, at first, displeased Joseph. And you got to remember, as prime minister of Egypt, his sons had a luxurious future ahead of them. The best of the land, the best education, positions of power and prestige in Egypt. And if, 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 if he gave his sons in adoption to his dad to be blessed by them, what that means is that he's throwing away this luxurious future in Egypt. And so as an invitation, Jacob offers Joseph a mountain slope in Shechem. Jacob, after a long life, 147 years, finally learned to trust God. And with his invitation for his son and his grandsons to trust the same God, the question is, will Joseph trust God? Will he accept the invitation? Will he renounce the privileges of Egypt and go to the promised land? That they're not there yet. It's going to be four or more years. Will he do it? Or will he settle for the treasures and the pleasures of Egypt? This was not Joseph's initial plan, but he in the end would trust God. And he would give his sons to be adopted by Jacob. And we know that from the rest of the Old Testament. And we know that he accepts his father's offer because in the end, in Joshua 24, Joseph will be buried on that mountain slope in Shechem. And his sons would inherit the land. So friends, what about you? Joseph renounces all and trusts in the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What about you? Will you submit your entire life and trust God with your entire life in order to receive the blessing, the blessing of Abraham, the presence of God that he promises to those who trust in him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a faithful God who not only makes promises, but keeps them. Lord, when we look at the schemes and the lies and the trickery of Jacob, it just seems so unnecessary because you never changed. You you made your promises, you, 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 you were present with him, and eventually he learned it. And so, Lord, we pray that we would learn from what Jacob says in his old age. So we pray that we would learn from the older saints in this church who are saying, who have the perspective of, that comes with age about what is truly worth living for. May we center our lives and hearts around you. Give us hearts that treasure you and trust you and follow you. May you be our shepherd all the days of our life. And would you in your grace redeem us from all evil that we may turn around and bless others as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.